Since it was the first time I photographed out of the, the open window of the Tesla, I was very surprised about uh, the wind and the gusts that also affected uh, the camera. But the biggest challenge was actually uh, my pilot could not see the Stämme, uh, which was flying next to us uh, without an engine. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for hanging out with us today. Excited to bring you this very special episode. We've been chatting back and forth with our guest, Toby Barth, and finally now down a date and time that we could do this. We are honored and happy to have him take some time out of his busy schedule and talk with us. Toby started flying gliders at the age of 13, and since then he has added an aerobatic license and a rating for motorized aircraft as well. Now, he spends a lot of his time at airfields all over Europe capturing those beautiful and unforgettable shots. A lot of you have seen on social media, calendars, and many other places his pictures show up. Toby and I chatted about his love for aviation and photography and what it takes to capture all those amazing shots. Now, don't go anywhere after Toby's story because Sergio, the soaring master, returns for another segment. And this one is titled Flying Old Timers. Now, I do want to thank our Patreon pilots. Thank you for your contributions. And if you'd like to help us out here on the podcast, you can do that as well. Just go to patreon.com slash soaring the sky. I'll also put that in the show notes for you. Just Soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit, would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI-sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix, which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. Toby, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you today. How are you? I'm not that bad. Uh, how are you? Nice to be in the show. I'm doing great. Yeah, nice to, nice to meet you. Back when I was uh, looking at Instagram, it's been a while now, and I was looking at some of your beautiful pictures, but I didn't realize at first that you were a glider pilot. So can you tell me how your story in aviation got started? Well, I can do it, of course. Um, so I have to go back a bit further in history because I'm a, bit, a little, bit, little bit older. So I grew up in the former uh, GDR at a time when Germany uh, was still divided. And for those who are not so familiar with the history of Germany, um, that was uh, the former Russian occupied zone due to the division into the Second World War or after the Second World War. And there, yeah, it was quite common for people uh, paid by the state to teach children something about the so-called uh, working groups. So um, I was lucky enough to have um, the opportunity to learn model flying and especially model building in my hometown. And a good school friend who didn't dare to go alone to there to the first time or for the first time asked me if I would like to come along with him. Uh, well, um, I stayed there. He left after half a year 
<laughs> so I learned to build model aeroplanes under supervision of a, uh, at the age of eight. The person who was in charge at that time uh, probably uh, realized that I had a good manual skills, was very enthusiastic uh, about it. And when the whale, the wall, uh, come down in, in, 90, uh, in 1989, and Germany was uh, reunited, uh, gliding was suddenly allowed for everyone again, and a gliding club was uh, founded in my hometown. This gave me the opportunity to make my first glider start at the age of uh, 12. And since then, I have never uh, let go of the sport. Uh, after that, I started the glider training at the age of uh, 13 uh, with a special permit, permit to fly. And uh, when I was uh, 14, I flew alone with, uh, for the first time on a, on a Polish uh, Bocian, uh, which is translated uh, as dog. But then I had to wait until um, I was 17 to get my uh, glider license. Uh, until then, I flew uh, the Polish aircraft of the time, such uh, the Priat or the Czech uh, Blanik. After I finished my, my, my school time, I first thought about uh, becoming a, a jet pilot with the, uh, in the German Air Force. Although I passed all the tests from today's perspective, I'm quite glad that I decided uh, against it. I then went to, to Aachen to train as a light aircraft builder, which was uh, unbelievable fun for me. And I have to say it was uh, the best decision of my life. And um, of course, it was uh, the best time of my life uh, till today. So um, the two bosses I had at the time were glider pilots themselves. So I was in the air some of the time on working days. Then I learned uh, how to maintain, overhaul, repair gliders uh, and small uh, motorized aircrafts and uh, wooden gliders as well, or wooden, uh, wooden motorized aircrafts. The exciting thing was that the job entailed new tasks every day and then I never did the same thing twice. After I, uh, as I really enjoyed my manual work, this gave me an, an extreme amount of pleasure. For example, we reassembled a flyable aircraft out of a crash one from uh, one was a wing, from the second, the fuselage, and from the third, uh, the engine or the tailplane. And afterwards, of course, we were allowed to fly these planes uh, by ourselves. And uh, other tasks were to repair the wings of wind turbines uh, on the ground, as well as attached in the state and, and lofty heights. Uh, once again, I was uh, very lucky with the situation that the company where I learned uh, use the same buildings or workshops as the Ackerflieg uh, from, from Aachen. Uh, and uh, since you can actually only be accepted into the Ackerflieg if you are a student, I made a special uh, application for acceptance, <laughs> even though I was still an apprentice. And I was accepted, uh, but uh, to this day I had been given the nickname Stift, uh, which is translated uh, pen, which is uh, colloquially for an uh, apprentice in the German-speaking world. 
I then did a few more license like aerobatic license or glider license and the license for uh, touring motor gliders or the acrobatic license. After flying the, the motor gliders in the club, uh, turbocharged ski uh, 109B, for a few hours I um, acquired to the, the towing license for it and the club did not have a winch uh, for launching. The gliders could only get into the air by the aerotow. And yeah, the, the time at the Ackerflieg was incredibly uh, formative for me for an aviation point of view. I came from a wooden glider that uh, still flew in my home club and was then allowed to fly plastic <laughs> uh, aircrafts for the, for the first time. The first glider I flew to get my towing license was the ASK-21. And five starts after the second, yeah, after the second, the glider was uh, the LS-8. And this was used uh, for training. <laughs> yes, for training. Wow. Um, <laughs> I had to change, to change the aircraft again and then now flew my, my third uh, type made of plastic, the ASW-27, <laughs> on, on nice. which I almost forget to operate the, the, the flaps on the takeoff because I was was so flashed during the, the takeoff. And the fourth type um, was the ASH-25, uh, which the club had at this uh, time. It was a very good combination of, of gliders uh, in, the, in, yeah. the, in, in the club. Yeah, the German Ackerflieks did research, build and fly, although I was more into flying than a research and building. Um, we had a rule that every member had um, to work 300 hours a year for the club. Oh, nice. Which I certainly spent in the air as well, because I was uh, more interested in the, in the flying. Um, so um, I was in the process of becoming a trained light aircraft builder this was uh, very very easy for me and afterwards as a student at uh, that time i had obviously no money and therefore i was uh, not interested in uh, the competitions instead I, I flew from the first to the last summit and uh, i didn't think that it was to have to fly a, a route at the competition that someone else uh, gave me. And I'm still not a, a flight instructor, but I really enjoyed pathing on my flying know-how, which I still enjoy doing. During this time, for example, I flew two times over 900 kilometers um, and I finished my, my, my time in, in Aachen with a degree in an aerospace engineering and now working for a subsidiary of a large European aviation company with an A at the beginning. <clears throat> I think everyone knows the other one beginning a busy B. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, I, I deal with the question concerning the development of uh, CFRP components from production to repair and recycling of this uh, uh, great material. And, and just uh, a few days ago, I was as a project leader for the for training course for employees of our parent company on issues such as repair of uh, fiber composite uh, structures and uh, repairs. So you get to work in aviation as well as play. So that, that's pretty awesome. 
Yeah, definitely. Yes, it's, it's, it's a very cool job. It's a very good combination between the, the job and the hobby. And uh, yeah, the, the, the airport is approximately one kilometer behind the company I work for. Oh, that's convenient. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Finish the job and go 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 out of the uh, the office and uh, yeah five yeah. minutes later we're on the <laughs> on the airfield. Nice, Toby. Can you tell us a bit more about the Aquafleeks in Germany and of course a bit of history and present day roles these groups of engineers play in aviation and sailplanes in Germany and beyond? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. Um, so it's definitely an excited question. <laughs> so um, I'd be happy to tell you about a little bit uh, about it, although I'm not really well uh, versed, uh, versed in, in, in history, but I will briefly try to describe it, 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 it simply. I think about uh, 1910, uh, aviation was, of course, a very up and, and coming industry and very uh, wealthy businessmen were active in the sector at the time, um, setting up companies to try the, the luck in aviation. So the, the first World War through a, a spanner in the works and many of those are active at the time were drafted into military service and, and unfortunately it did not return alive. So. Um, after the end of the, the first war, the operation of powered flight was prohibited in Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. And what was not prohibited was, was gliding. And so many former employees who had been involved in the aviation before the war um, got together again. So at the same time, many uh universe uh, realized that a aviation was uh, emerging industry and offered it as a subject in their, their buildings this uh, lead to many students groups so-called arcafleeks which still exists today and yes individual arcafleeks then merged in 1951 i think from the the idfleek so interessengemeinschaft deutscher akademischer fliegergruppen or Idafleek in short, which is still exists there today. Idafleek is a so-called an umbrella organization for the individual Akafleeks. It's uh, yeah, its history role in the development of, of gliding is truly unique in the, in the world, of course, and very important and groundbreaking developments for the gliding came out of, of other Akafleeks, I think. For example, the world's first fiber composite glider was built and flown in the Akafleek. In my opinion, was the FS24 Phoenix, so I remember correctly. And also important manufacturers and, uh, like a DG or Aviation or Alexander Schleicher or Rolladen Schneider emerged from members of, uh, of Akafleeks. And uh, many other developments such as winglets were investigated, but also ideas that proved not be useful were finally um, important for gliders uh, or gliding. Um, due to the, the pr uh, price increase in glider development, in my opinion, the, the importance of development is no longer so great today. <laughs> and I, I know that I will uh, certainly receive negative criticism uh, for this opinion, but uh, it's, it's, it's my own opinion. 
whether the importance today is slightly different. Today, it's more the training of aeronautical engineers and hands-on material, like um, sticking their fingers in the resin pot and, and building constructions and calculating aircraft, and less the groundbreaking new developments, uh, which we uh, saw in, in the history of the Aka fleets. And uh, the Aka fleet or Interfleet, in cooperation with the uh, German Aerospace Center, is, uh, which is DLR in short, is known worldwide for the flight performance measurement of uh, current gliders or the older gliders as well. And at the Ederflieg summer meeting, uh, which takes place every year, the gliders are measured and the polars are given by the manufacturers of the gliders um, when they are checked for the accuracy and uh, new measurement uh, procedures uh, are, are valid. So years ago, I was allowed to uh, accompany to of these measurement flights, which starts exactly at sunrise to be towed to flight level uh, 9.5, which is <laughs> quite high. Um, and there the measurement flight starts between the so-called uh, holy uh, discus and the glider to be uh, to be measured. Oh, wow. Nice. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Toby, was there ever anything along the way when you were with the other engineers designing or refining sailplanes or aircraft that on paper looked like a breakthrough concept, but then in practice and prototyping just really failed to live up to the concept? I mean, surely... Yeah. There were some yeah, yeah, concepts yeah. that you guys worked on that were interesting, but just just didn't come out when when you tried to execute them. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. exactly. In, in in my Aka fleet, we had such uh, yeah such the idea or project which was cancelled years later. Yeah, these these development uh, exists, and I even worked for the development uh, by myself. And um, it was a so-called um, FVA-27, a glider in duck plane uh, configuration. Uh, this means that the canard, the horizontal stabilizer, that does not sit at the rear of the rear of the tail plane, but in the front of the main wing. Um, the special thing about it that the tail plane always have to produce a downforce when it sits on the rear of the tail boom in order to, to compensate the, the moment of the, the main wing. And uh, in the, the duck plane, um, this is so that, that the wing produces lift instead of downforce to produce the, the same moment. And uh, overall, this improves a drag um, of the whole aircraft. So this concept on which I myself worked at the and investigated many hours of work, unfortunately, it turned out to be too complex, too difficult to implement, and later on too cost intensive. And due to the, the long duration of the project, the technical development of the airfoils and 
this concept became outdated and was uh, discontinued a few years after my active time as a student. Toby, being both a tow pilot and a glider pilot, once you had had a chance to do both and after you had done many glider tows, when you got back in the cockpit of your glider and someone else was towing, were there things, even little details, that you might have started to do differently after being on the other side of the rope? Did being a tow pilot change your perspective at all from being on the glider side? Yeah, definitely. It, it changed my, my perspective. Uh, yeah, definitely. So it uh, before I came a tow pilot uh, by myself, the pilot in the tow plane was always the one who made the right decision for me. Yeah? And I trusted him blindly and it was um, convinced that he would make the right decision if any problem arose. So then when I had done this auto-rating by myself, I suddenly felt totally insecure because I actually believed that anyone else uh, I was towing would take the same about me, um, that I would always make the right decision if a problem arose, such a rope break or an engine failure or something else. Um, that had a great, great uh, impact on me personally and actually put me under a lot of pressure because I'm basically a perfectionist uh, and always uh, try to make the best decision. And yes, that really cost me a lot of <laughs> sweat. Um, those uh, first toes I did there. And they made even more difficult by the fact that I did my um, towing license on, a, on an, an airfield on a very smooth 1,000 uh, meters uh, runway, even flat runway in France. Um, and after I had done the rating, I had to wait a month until the rating was registered in my license. And uh, when I had this license, I did my first auto with my license. Um, the runway uh, in, in Germany was, was only uh, 600 uh, meters long, which is more or less uh, half the distance. Wow. <laughs> and I, I died, I died uh. a thousand deaths and sweated off, <laughs> out what I felt like 10 liters <laughs> of water in, in, the, in the few seconds of the, of the tow. <laughs> and, all, and although I know yeah. exactly that the glider was capable to towing, that the, the tow glider was capable to tow the glider into the air on the, the short runway. And yes, you really have to do completely different perspective on responsibility you have as an aerial pilot in front and still have that, uh, that today. And uh, I no longer see it as an impeachably correct opinion um, because there is only a person sitting in the front of the topling. So um, yes, uh, being a tow pilot, pilot changed my uh, my perspective of the guy in, in front of a glider uh, definitely so let's talk about your 1000 kilometer almost flights sounds like you had <laughs> sounds like you had two of them back to back recently how about take the listeners through one of those flights or maybe just what stuck out the most out of both of those flights i mean 1000 kilometer flights they're a massive achievement anywhere in the world, but some places are harder than others yeah. due to weather, terrain, you know, cloud-based. Yeah. We'd love to hear about one of these. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you, dude. It was a pleasure. So, unlike you expect, the flight uh, is not only done in recent past, but it's already um, a little bit longer in the, in, the, in the past, a little bit longer back. So, I think that's about 15 years ago. And actually, exactly these flights are also a reason why I got. Uh, today less on kilometers hunt than I on uh, hunt for beautiful moment um, that I uh, try to capture uh, photographically. But back to the question, um, I was a student in the Aka fleet and had the opportunity to fly an aircraft that I could, could fly as an age, age, age 25. Um, this was an aircraft of a professor, he was a friend of mine and had the key for, and they had the key for the, the trailer. And the area around uh, Aachen is actually uh, relatively good for for soaring and flying um, for the, for the large uh, flights. That's 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 quite cool. And uh, you can uh, take off relatively early, so uh, the cloud base and the cumulus thermic is also fine in this area. Unlike the the Norman Germany uh, northern Germany area where I live today. There are also uh, artificial thermals in, in form of uh, coal fire power plants. Um, they make it possible to extend flight a little bit um, after the end of the, the uh, thermal because you can still fly um, there after the, the, the sun uh, reaching the horizon. Um, and what I remember uh, to this day, it was uh, we uh, took off uh, too late uh, on, on both flights. So we underestimated the height of the, the first cumulus clouds of the day, uh, where the air uh, about half, uh, three quarters of an hour too, too late. Um, yeah, well, we, we learned from that. Um, both flights just missed uh, the, the thousand kilometer mark. Um, once it was 936 kilometers and the day after it was uh, 940 kilometers and uh, not the thousand kilometer mark. I was, uh, I really flew on two uh, consecutive days on almost 12 hours each. And between the, the landing of the first flight and then uh, start of second uh, flight, there were only a little less than uh, 12 hours. And what I still remember is um, that we flew into France, which uh, is no longer possible due to uh, some military airspaces today. Um, and and on, on the way, um, there was a large uh, power plant and the exhaust fumes were unbelievably good, uh, rising over six meters per second. But its smells was so chemical and that uh, I was I feel sick to my stomach every time. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that was not good. And yes, uh, I actually can't remember so many other things except uh, to marking the 1,000 kilometer, uh, kilometers because we hit uh, weather limits uh, twice and so the weather um, was not uh, in, uh, good enough to make such dix flights on this on these both days we had to give up um, on both days uh, the plan to um, turn around early and in the evening we extended uh, the flights a bit with the 
artifactual thermals uh, from the uh, cold fire uh, power plants. Uh, but uh, we could not fly such long distance with the maximum possible uh, five turn points. So who um, of the listeners does not know the areas uh, so well now? The flying areas was uh, low, uh, low mountains ranges. Uh, where we uh, flew and not mountains like uh, the, the southern uh, southern Germany. Um, the maximum base altitudes we had on these days were, I think, were 2,200 meters, um, which which was okay, but not but not really really good. Um, but with large uh, spreads of overdevelopment uh, cumulus clouds, um, what I can still remember was that on the second yeah, second flight actually had a, a relatively strong hangover around noon um, where I could not do uh, anything at all. I could hardly do uh, any more thermaling, uh, circling or the, <laughs> uh, the speed uh, so tired I was. And uh, after the landing, I and my team partner were a bit sad because we didn't make the 1,000-kilometer mark. But it was clear, should the next day's uh, good weather, flying weather again, we both uh, will certainly not sit <laughs> in this plane, but sleep until noon. <laughs> that was my, <laughs> my remembering at these, uh, these two flights. Right. So close. Yeah, but, so but, close. But, uh, but good flights. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Good, good flights and uh, flights to remember. Toby... I want to transition now into what most listeners probably know you for, and that's photography. Countless glider pilots yeah. follow you on your social media platforms, and you do also sell your pictures on your website. But how about tell us briefly how you got into photography to begin with, and what led you specifically into aviation and sailplane photography? Uh, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, that's a, a somewhat a longer story. <laughs> what I would like to do is explain <laughs> it to you and to the listeners. Um, as a student, I never had the money for a decent camera, uh, uh, something like a DSLR. But the topic has always interested me. So I started taking pictures with my small Pentax compact camera. But um, these results were not <laughs> very impressive. I then meet my wife in oh, I have to go, 2011. And she was really taking pictures, really good pictures with the Nikon DSLR. And the pictures were much, 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 much better than mine. So I bought uh, my, um, my, my own relatively tricky. It was a Nikon D90 was a used camera for approximately 250 euros with, with a lens, with an interchangeable uh, lens, and then started to take pictures, um, walking attempts, and learn to use to use the camera. And I was incredibly bad and, and a bad photographer, and my wife is even faster today to recognize and <laughs> select a good, a good, uh, good subject. In, I think, 2013, we flew together to South Africa, South Africa, and made a month-long wild camping tour through Botswana, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. And there we had then, for example, in the Kalahari for the Okawa or the Akawango Delta overnight in a tent. 
and we photographed a lot of nature, wildness, and a lot of, uh, of course, wild animals. Wow! And nice. yes, that that was actually the starter uh, for me to begin a deal more with with photography. And uh, yeah, however, my pictures were significantly worse than those of my wife, although we had the same camera, uh, the, uh, the Nikon D90. And at the first, it was hard for me to realize that this was not due to the camera, but <laughs> due to the photographer, means due to me. <laughs> but I had a good, very good teacher. Um, and during this time, I also took uh, photography classes to learn even more about taking pictures. So I just started uh, photographing everything like um, starry skies, landscapes, animals, insects, planes, people, <laughs> just just really everything. With this picture, I created uh, an, an, an account on, on Flickr to have a kind of showcase for the picture to I took in, in some way. Um, that went quite well. So uh, I got there relatively quickly positive comments with then made uh, made me a bit a bit proud of course um, i realized quite quickly uh, that okay can photography many uh, things okay but nothing really good so then i realized that i could be quite useful to 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 focus on a little and find a niche at this time i took uh, took pictures on the on the ground and the air plates on the runway uh, during the, the, the sunset and i tried to to make a little artistically valued pictures at that time still together with uh, with my wife and that it was a really really great time uh, to to do it together with her uh, we had a lot of fun and it was great to look at the results on the computer and just have those moments. I then uh, even took pictures at uh, competitions as soon I wasn't on the, on the uh, or in the plane, I wasn't flying. And I think two years later in 2015, I think I got a, a call from the uh, publisher of the photo calendar in, in spring of February. And I might have to go back in history for, for a short moment. Um, the original photographer, uh, Klaus Dieter-Zink, had unfortunately passed away in 2010. And the, the rights to the pictures were taken over by the calendar uh, publisher. And she had been looking for uh, someone who could take pictures in a relatively high quality of sailplanes uh, for a long time. And not um, the same picture that you see every time on in every social media uh, platform. And then after a long research on the internet, she, she found me through my pictures on Flickr, to my uh, Flickr, Flickr account. And the, the first uh, phone call was actually over an hour. And when then agreed uh, that I could publish one or two images in the upcoming edition of the, the Glider photo calendar for a very small fee. So I was incredibly proud, especially since I had never explicitly uh, worked towards getting uh, some some money for, for, for my pictures. Uh, less than a month later, uh, the flying season started in, in, in Europe uh, again. So uh, precisely in the, the French Alps. 
and I immediately started taking pictures in flight and found out that it was not that easy that I had originally thought. And uh, yeah, I had meet uh, met uh, Klaus Dieterzink in, in France and often talked with him uh, in the evening over a good glass of red wine about flying, but never about photography. And uh, I only saw his, his glider from a distance. And unfortunately, I, I never saw um, a photography technology uh, he used in the plane. Um, and from today's perspective, it's, it's of course, a bit uh, of pity, but perhaps also a good, um, a good thing so that I had to learn to uh, go completely my, my own way in the photography. And then, yeah, my first ways were not very uh, successful, although I had uh, some, some good pictures. I think out of approximately 500 pictures I took per flight, only 10. <laughs> 10 pictures showed an airplane uh, but the wing was cut off and the horizon was not was not leveled and uh, yeah for every thousand pictures i think there was a, uh, about one really good pictures uh, i like personally um, so yeah uh, until today i have invested approximately uh, let me count it together 15000 uh, i think 15000 euros in, in photo equipment and I sold the most of it again only to find out what uh, what was the most useful equipment for me and my my way of uh, photography and at the, the end of 2021 or 2021 um, the season I had more than um, 53,000 pictures of, of gliders on, on, on my hard desk uh, more than uh, 90 of them are uh, aerial photographies in, in, of gliders in, in, in flight, means in, in air-to-air pictures of gliders. Wow, nice. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains, they also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. What is the hardest part about executing a good aerial photograph? Maybe of a glider or another airplane that maybe most people wouldn't think about. I guess many people think, Hey, what's so hard about that? You just point your camera yeah, out yeah. the window, yeah. click a few times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about take us through what the hardest thing, you know, whether equipment or technique that took you the longest to master? Oh, whoa, that's a really, really interesting question to me. Um, I get the following question uh, quite often. I want to take uh, pictures like you, uh, which camera should I buy? Um, and when I read such question on, on Facebook or Instagram, I think uh, you can use the same camera, but you won't get the same picture. And uh, it's like a chief in a restaurant. If they, they, the food tasted good, no one ever gets the idea that it was because of the particular high pots and pans. But exactly this comparison is, is true. Um, I have to absolutely master the equipment, but also know the receipt of the picture. In other words, understand the spices and the ingredient and their effect. So come back to, come back to your question. 
I think the most difficult thing is by far not the camera setting, but the way to take good pictures. Um, for me personally, the picture is first created in my head. I plan the position of the sun, the position of the airplane in the picture, and the bed and the background relatively precisely, and then fly to that exact spot um, for the desired photo. So the most difficult thing for me was to learn what I had uh, to do to take exactly my target photo. For example, I'm in a very close radio contact with the pilot of the other glider and give him precise instruction on how to fly. And of course, ideally, we have already discussed this on, on, on the ground, um, such a, a pre-flight briefing and it um, can take up to and this can take up to to uh, 30 minutes especially um, if the flight area is, is still unknown for me and when i think back it's exactly what makes the difference it was the most difficult thing for me to learn and over the time i have developed in i think in my own style in the pictures um i think the image itself is, is, is highly determined by the lens I use and not by the camera um, but but nobody wanted to know about it until now um, so I shoot relatively wide angle to get more of the great landscapes into the picture um, that means that the glide the other glider has to fly very very close to me um, usually it is a wingspan distance yeah between I think between uh, 15 and 25 meters um, what really was difficult for me was to learn how to fly and photograph at the same time without uh, losing the uh, safety. Uh, it's so stressful for me that I can only do it for maximum uh, maximum 15 minutes at the time, and then I need a li little, little break in the, in the air or on the ground. And I can't process more in my head at, at the same time, yeah. When I think about it now, um, more and more factors <laughs> come come into my mind. Um, an additional one is, is the time pressure. It, it, it sounds a bit un unusual at the first time, but <laughs> let me explain a bit. Um, many of my pictures are taken in place where there are no lifts at the time of the photo. For example, at, at sunrise or sunset or, or over the, the open sea. And at the moment, the glider releases a tow rope there are about um, ah, 10 minutes left uh, for all the photos, depending on the on the reached uh, altitude and the distance to the to the landing point or the safety field. And the, the clock counts down and <laughs> creates for me a very high uh, stress level. Um, often there is also a high noise level at <laughs> the open window. Uh, sometimes I fly as a, as a co-pilot with the uh, disassembled door. Um, and my half upper body is hanging out of the plane in the wind, blindly operating the camera with uh, thick gloves is uh, simply a part of the job. And uh, there is simply uh, no time to search for, for the right camera settings. If you had to choose one single moment, one single picture as an epitaph and a crowning achievement of your career, which would it be? Uh, wow. <laughs> oh, again, what a what a tough question. <laughs> I think 
I think is that always consider the images uh, that are the more recent are my best uh, images. So maybe because I'm still very emotionally um, attached to the planning of the image and the effort behind it. Um, but highlights, uh, yeah, have have a few. So uh, let me pick up two, please, <laughs> not only one. The first was was a planned photo flight over in a nature reserve with the brand new uh, Stemme S12. So for this, I had arranged a meet uh, of, of the Stemme factory pilot in Pokeshof, south of Rostock uh, on, on the Baltic Sea. It is the northeastern part of, of Germany. And I myself flew uh, with Stennis in Cessna um, uh, 172, which uh, with a retractable landing gear. So it's an hour and a half to this decision airfield. And the weather was, was only very moderate. Um, and the destination airfield, we had to land directly because the weather absolutely did not allow another uh, minute in the air. Um, so the pressure on me was particularly high since this time no glider pilot colleague from my own club flew uh, the photo model, uh, but a company was behind it, which sent not only the factory pilot, but also their newest flagship uh, to me. Um, yeah, so the weather was uh, like the First, still very uh, questionable, um, but improved in uh, quite quite good as as predicted. And I had been in planning the days uh, for about half a year. Uh, that made me additionally <laughs> nervous. Uh, and after the, the Stemme finally landed on the airfield, um, the making uh, marketing boss of Stemme was uh, the co-pilot. So. Uh, now the pressure was was even higher on me, and it, we made uh, a very detailed briefing. And I had one eye on the clock because um, the time was, was 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 running for the for the photos. Um, and then um, a short time later, uh, together we had arranged uh, over the island Dars. Since it was the first time I photographed out of the the open window of the Cessna. I was very surprised about uh, the wind and the gusts that also affected uh, the camera. But the biggest challenge was actually uh, my pilot could not see the Stämme, uh, which was flying next to us uh, without an engine. So I had to re more or less remote control my, my pilot at the same time and tell him uh, whether he should climb or think at the same time. At the same position, the pilot of the Stemme, of course, uh, shoot, and I, of course, shoot actually together the, the, the photo. Um, we restarted the engine of this Stemme uh, in total three times to um, regain altitude and flew along the really great looking coast of the Baltic Sea to get a different view of the landscape again and again. So at the end, uh, there were really unique pictures in the box and in the camera, of course. And we landed not only this one, landed not only in the, the photo calendar, but also in the calendar of the, the company uh, Stemme. So I was, uh, yes, I was a bit proud of it. And the second flight um, was not less exciting uh, for me. I always want to have a beautiful landscape in background of my pictures. 
this is in northern Germany partly not that easy because it looks apart from the coast of the North Sea and the Baltic Sea in the interior relatively uniform. So uh, to, to say monotonously, uh, here uh, sunrise and sunset offer themselves because the landscapes um, is then completely different uh, in colors and the light draws attentionally to completely different things than during the day. After I have uh, photographed uh, some, some uh, sunsets in the, the recent years, I wanted to, to photograph at sunrise to, to know um, whether the lights uh, moods is perhaps even better. So I then tried to choose a suitable day for the, for the morning haze that occurs uh, on, on our region in autumn by means of a good, good weather forecast. Um, the great thing is that this haze is stationary from the, for the ground and there is no wind blowing uh, no wind blowing um, and it's only a few meter thick um, for the yeah for the selected day i asked my colleague torben if he would like to go uh, do a sunrise flies with the brand new mini lac uh, with the front electrical uh, sustainer and, and he knows my photos and was immediately on board uh, yeah, I drove to the, to the airfield uh, well before sunrise and pushed the motor, club motor glider out of the hangar and um, stored my, my, my photo equipment um, in, the, in the cockpit. Yeah, approximately 15 minutes before sunrise, I took off to meet um, the Mini-Lug with, uh, with the electric motor in the, in the front in the, the neighborhood airfield at exactly the right uh, moment. Yeah, the exciting thing about this, uh, that only uh, after takeoff and with the onset of the, the dawn, um, you can tell whether the day is worth or not, because it's still uh, dark just bef uh, beforehand. And this makes the sunset compared to the sunrise uh, many times more exciting to photograph. Well, what I can say, I had uh, interpreted the weather uh, maps correctly. <laughs> and in addition, there was uh, some luck, of course. The morning haze was uh, unbelievably great to look at. And it's almost hard for me to find the words for this. And uh, yeah, due to the FES drive, we had had no stress this time um, after he released uh, the tow rope. And uh, we stayed um, at an altitude of about 1,000 feet and captured many unique pictures on the, on the memory card uh, during the uh, 30 minutes of flight. And yeah, after the battery of the Mini-Lug was, was empty, I watched um, the safe landing of the glider and stayed a bit above the, the photo spot because it was so beautiful to fly uh, straight back. Um, and after I landed again, I must have uh, smiled uh, and <laughs> beamed it to the world day. Uh, so happy and proud I was about the successful photo flight. And uh, I also think that in the coming years, photos from this flight will, will always end in, in my calendar. Yeah, the first of the series can be seen in August of the 22 edition, means uh, this year edition. Um, they're even with the River Elbe uh, flowing in the direction of the uh, Omega City Hamburg. I, I could actually tell 
of many more flights of this kind, but I have already told with the second flight uh, more than the actual question was. Uh, yeah, however, I would like to tell one thing again, because it comes into my head just now. My, my focus is definitely on photos and especially with this flight, but uh, also many other I'm really sad not to be able to to film at the same time. I'm, I'm already nervous enough before the flight and just can't imagine to install additional cameras uh, alone speak something meaningful <laughs> into the camera. Let's see if modern technology might change this in the upcoming years. Uh, maybe we see something something in the years in the future. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America. And they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They are also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. You know, I was, I was looking at a lot of your photos today, actually. Um, no, really. Some of my favorites are uh, the sunrise and sunsets that you were just talking yes. about. Yeah, yeah. These uh, are really, really, really unique, yeah. They are stunning, stunning pictures. Awesome. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I really, really like the 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 sun rises because yeah, the, the the light is is more special than the sun sets. It's I, I can't describe it, and you see smile through the the whole day when you have a sunrise right. flight. It's 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 it, it, the sunrise flight has everything their own own and spirit. I think that's interesting that the two are different as far as the lighting. You know. Yes, uh, be, be, because it's because of the haze. Because in the morning uh, yeah. the haze is on the ground; it's only on the ground. And in mm -hmm. this second, when the, when the when the sun comes up, the earth gets warmer, so the haze will be not there anymore. And when it's there, it's dusty. It's 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 more moisture in the air. And in the, in the morning, you have the the haze in a very thin area above the ground. And in the evening, you have it up to 1,000 meters. Right. So nice. uh, due to the convection uh, and, and the thermal activities, so the sun rise, it's, it's more special than the, than the sunset, yeah. That's very interesting. Wow. Now, this is a kind of random question, Toby, but have you ever gotten a chance to fly any vintage gliders? <laughs> yeah. And, and if you have, what types and which were your favorites? Which ones made you maybe not so comfortable in the cockpit or... <laughs> Like characteristics. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, the first question to relax a bit. So, of course, I I uh, fly a glass uh, wing mosquito. Um, that's um, a year older than I am. That's definitely an, an older time at over forty years, right? But I don't think <laughs> that was was you meet with the question. And. The real old Thomas I would like to call a Gruner baby uh, and the prototype of the D37 um, Artemis, I think, uh, from the Ackerflick Darmstadt. Um, one of the two designers was uh, Wilhelm Dirks, uh, one of the founders of uh, 
DG uh, Aviation. I think the, the year of construction of the D37 uh, was in 1967. Uh, unfortunately, I don't remember for the Grunau baby. So the Grunau baby was just a, a fun machine. I had flown the SH-25 on the same day. Um, so it was a total change between planes, uh, but it was totally easily and intuitive uh, to fly, especially since I had flown many Polish-made uh, wooden planes in my early years. Yeah, more uh, pleasant was the um, unpleasant was the D37, um, uh, but I don't remember the details. It was uh, years in, in the past. I think it was uh, the general handling and the rudder uh, tuning. And another old times come to my, my mind. It was what the glass uh, glass wing or glass flugel in, in German uh, 604. It was a serial number nine built in, in 1971. For those who don't know the details, it was the open class airplane from glass flugel or gla glass wing with a wingspan of uh, 22 meters, which was uh, developed from the 70 meter Kestrel and uh, already uh, manufactured in 1970, I think, with a glide ratio of uh, almost 50, almost 50. Plane was 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 very easy to fly, um, uh, but in in the in the air, but especially the the landing demand everything um, uh, from me. So the ergonomics um, and the arrangement of the very numerous levers in the cockpit, among other things, by two levers for the flaps and two further for the for the brake, so uh, good, and not be compared with with today's standard. So especially um, since the air brakes were uh, ex extremely bad, my remembers uh, flying some 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 old timers. In terms of your own sailplane gliding experiences, can you give us maybe one or two particular flights that really stick out in your mind, and maybe take us through those flights and what you gained or learned from? I remember um, one flight in particular. It was in the, in the French Alps in a very snowy spring. I think seven years ago, approximately, we took off after sunrise, um, just after sunrise, and were lucky enough to find a quite strong wave. And when then made quite good progress, we flew into the higher mountains to the to the north, and there we had uh, an, an upward criteria um, at uh, 3,700 meters below this altitude. We wanted to fly back. And above this altitude, the idea was to look, to look for the, so the updrafts. Already at uh, 3,900 meters, we noticed that there was only a strong um, sinking, and we flew away from this, this area, uh, a huge downdraft there. And uh, I was flying uh, with two other pilots during this, uh, this flight. And we on, and unfortunately lost each other and no longer uh, had visual contact uh, together. And then I had to fly uh, to back home alone against uh, the, the sun, uh, which was uh, not yet uh, too high on the horizon directly in, from the front. And I was then looking at the very snowy landscape without contrasts and was flying at the ground speed of approximately 200 kilometers per hour. So we had a strong wind in this higher altitude there. 
and, and the sink rate increased and I had to decide which of the two valleys uh, to use for the further flight. I knew that one valley was not landable and only one valley would take me home. So um, I was uh, traveling in an, an unfamiliar DG400 aircraft that I had just bought with a friend some, some months before. In uh, a moving map was not installed in the, in the, in the glider. And I was very stressed um, because of the high sink rate of approximately 10 meters per second. Um, it was very unusual uh, was the, the position of the sun because it was in a different place because it was still very early in the day. So I didn't know exactly in which valley I have to fly into. And uh, then I flew um, very low to the ground and uh, found a ridge. Um, which I found uh, upwinds there over snow-covered mountains. Uh, yeah, and then, I, however, I, I was really scared because the terrain in this area is, is definitely not landable. I made it back home, but I was so stressed after the flight. I didn't f fly the, the next day. Well, what, what, what can you learn from this? You have to be 100% prepared in the aircraft and not like me flying without the moving map and uh, in an aircraft um, that you didn't trust a hundred percent yet uh, so a long story short be prepared all the time absolutely toby we always like to talk safety of course here on the show one thing we see a lot of in social media you know people are trying to mimic the cool stuff that you're doing with close proximity you know the air-to-air pics of other gliders can you please talk to the community about the risk of this type of photography and what can go wrong and what they should pay attention to? We can, of course, suggest that people just don't do it. But, you know, the reality is when people see cool work like yours, then, you know, of course, they're going to want to stick the GoPro or an iPhone out the side window in their cockpit and get a picture of their gliding buddy. You know how that works. But can you talk about that? I think it's, it's, it's really good uh, that you are bringing this up. Um, I see this from two points of view. Um, let's first talk about um, YouTube and other, <laughs> other social medias. Um, I personally find the situation uh, really worrying. Um, on the one hand, everyone um, who has an account there wants to have more followers and gets likes for what they uh, upload online. Um, unfortunately, um, behind these uh, portals um, are companies um, that want to make a profit uh, with every post. And this leads uh, to the fact that particularly daring looking title pictures or descriptions on YouTube are clicked more often than others. And the, the algorithm behind reacts to this and shows uh, this post <laughs> more often than others. This leads to dull, perhaps somewhat bumpy landings being described as if the plane were total loss afterwards, just to get more clicks, uh, to name just one harmless example. Um, videos of obviously risky maneuvers are not deleted either, but rather serve the user to get uh, even more followers, as the video is often shown to users uh, uh, through uh, many comments. Um, in, in, in my view, this is a spiral uh, from um, which is difficult to escape. Um, I, I also consider the argument that other pilots 
could benefit from their own mistakes to be partly uh, an excuse. But of course, on the other hand, I have to look at my own nose. If I relate it to uh, my online portals, um, then I can say that I take photos for aviation customers and above all for the, the gliding can calendar um, that is available worldwide. And, and not for Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. Everything I show there was taken besides and not especially for these portals. But let me back come to your question. Especially in my case, only my pilot, um, the glider pilot, and I know how exactly I take these pictures. Um, in this way, I want to prevent inexperienced um, pilots from, from putting themselves into a, danger, a dangerous situation, even through I have been asked several times for video. And to keep the risk as low as possible, I conduct, uh, of course, uh, like I said uh, previously, a pre-flight briefing and a deflight briefing. In this, we clarified the understanding of the roles, huh? who flies where, which maneuvers will we fly, in which order, which speed we fly, and which frequency we are, and what are the, the upward criteria uh, for, the, for, the, for the flight. And uh, there have uh, also been flights where I have only noted in the air that the, the model is not able to control his, his own aircraft. Yeah, I uploaded these flights and land again. And uh, whenever it's possible, I fly alone during my photo shoots and I photograph and then fly at the same time. Um, I have done this on about half of my flights until now and during the, the last year and have especially adapted equipment to do exactly this. And uh, to come to an end and to, to, to final note, do not do anything stupid just for a cool picture. Toby, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. It's been so much fun chatting with you. I know the listeners are definitely going to enjoy this. Yeah, thanks uh, thanks uh, also from my side. And uh, hopefully the listeners uh, have a good time uh, with this podcast. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Soaring Master here with tips and advice about soaring and cross-country flying. Old sailplane types are not only good-looking, well, there are some exceptions, but also very interesting to fly. Designed in a different era, with different materials and performance, older sailplane types are a flyable time machine. Their handling and performance are a testimony of other times, but apart from the fun of flying these machines, is there any value for a modern pilot and performing a local flight with an old-timer? And the answer is a big yes, for two main reasons. The first is that by flying different aircraft with different handling characteristics, we take our brains out from the comfort zone. It will have to quickly learn how much force and response you get during all flight phases. After this experience, when you go back flying a modern type, your skills will be much sharper than before. We call this aircraft handling detachment, and this is used in flight test schools to enable test pilots to evaluate the aircraft response during a certain task in an unbiased way. So during a typical flight test course, you get to fly two or three completely different aircraft in a single day. 
For instance, an aerobatic aircraft, a general aviation and a fighter, or a sailplane. And we perform the same evaluations with them. This improves the ability to assess the aircraft against the desired task. We fly the task and we evaluate the aircraft. This brain exercise is great and that's why test pilots are praised for their airmanship because they are used to quickly get the aircraft. They are always working on a higher sensorial mechanical frequency. Do the same by flying as many different types you can and making your brain quickly get new handling from different sailplane types. The second reason for flying old-timers is that most of the flights carried out with them are local flights, without any other objective but to stay aloft, tourmaline or ridge flying, without any pressure or time constraints. So, you can practice different techniques and explore phenomena to your heart's content. It's pure joy, and we all dedicate more strongly to a task that brings peace of mind and pleasure. So, whenever you can, Go fly an old timer. I wish you all happy flying. For more tips, follow me on Instagram at Surimaster or check my website, surimaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at SoaringTheSky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.